Prime Minister Justin Trudeau unleashes a torrent of radical, extreme, woke, far-left policies this week. It's been the wokest week in Canadian history, from gun bans to hard drug legalization to refusing to admit that the pandemic is over. I'm Kenneth Malcolm, and this is The Kenneth Malcolm Show. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in. What an incredible week we are living through. It's like every woke idea in Justin Trudeau's head is coming out in the form of public policy. It's really wild just to keep up with all of the things that are going on. And so to help us make sense of the world and, and to break down some of the more extreme policies that we are seeing is True North senior journalist Andrew Lawton. Andrew, welcome to the program. Thanks for joining us. Hey, good to be back. Thanks for having me on. It's not uh, pour. Well, I mean, it is still pouring rain where I am, but I'm not in the rain like last time I was on your show. So we're <laughs> we're moving in a drier direction. That's right. Well, well, we are. Um, honestly, I, I I couldn't believe the callousness of Justin Trudeau in introducing a gun ban like this just a week after the horrific news event down in Uvalde, Texas. It seemed like the most sort of callous, calculated, uh, just opportunistic kind of icky thing I've seen in politics for in a long time. And, you know, maybe it's good poli policy, good good politics, because a lot of Canadians don't like guns. We don't have the same sort of gun culture, certainly, that they have in Texas. Uh, but it just seemed so opportunistic. And, and I, I'm surprised that more journalists aren't sort of calling him out on it. So, Andrew, you, you are a gun enthusiast. He produced a fantastic documentary, Assaulted Justin Trudeau's War on Gun Owners. So you're sort of our, our resident gun nut around here, Andrew, and I'm hoping that you can help us um, understand what 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 exactly Justin Trudeau announced? Uh, he called it a freeze. It, it seemed more like a temporary ban to me. Um, so so what what is what is different and what is your reaction to it? So what they're doing is actually saying that no more handguns once this legislation passes will be able to be purchased. That's what they're going for. And this is a bit of a contrast, a significant contrast from the big gun ban they did that kind of triggered assaulted two years ago, which actually overnight froze these things. So there's quite a, a different change in tactics here. But I, I think the point that you introduced a moment ago is the key one. It's responding not to a Canadian problem. There is no Canadian gun ownership problem that stems from law-abiding gun owners. There's an American problem that Justin Trudeau wanted to piggyback onto. Well, and, and it just seemed like such an, uh, un, un, again, unbelievably callous. I'm, I'm, I'm surprised that the, that the media hasn't sort of j jumped on it. But okay, so, so in the US, the, 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 the concern is that, um, you know, young people, people who are mentally unstable, uh, aren't being properly screened, and they're able to go and buy you know, machine guns or whatever you call them, assault, assault white rifles or just heavy, heavy duty rifles. Um, and, and that's a problem for many on the, in the U.S. Uh, Canada, we don't have the problem with mass shooting. Uh, if anything, th there is a, a problem, though, with handguns, with, with crime, mostly in urban centers in places like Toronto, Vancouver, Montreal. So I'm wondering, Andrew, do you think that this gun freeze or gun ban, temporary ban, uh, will, will help address that issue at all? 
No, it'll do the opposite because when you look at the the problems, I mean, the two big centers for this, Toronto and Surrey in British Columbia, the problems are inner city gang related problems. There are guns that are overwhelmingly illegally smuggled in from the US. So there is a connection in that sense to the American gun uh, ownership uh, system, but they're not coming from the lawful market in Canada. So if you try to do what Justin Trudeau is doing in his own words, which is close off the legal handgun market in Canada, it actually does nothing to deal with the firearms that are at the root of this gun crime. And to be fair, there is stuff in this bill that goes after smuggling. There is stuff in this bill that goes after the border and stiffer penalties. I'd say not nearly enough. And I'd say that the thing that he's really focusing on here, going after the law abiding, is entirely disconnected from where we do have an issue with guns in Canada. And it's not from lawful licensed ownership, which has an insane amount of hurdles to go through. And just, I mean, the government admitted this too. There was a story in Reuters where a reporter had asked a government official, do you think there's going to be this this run on handguns because of this? And the official said, no, 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 because they're so regulated and hard to get. We're not worried about that. So if that's the case, then why? I mean, why do you think he introduced this? He doesn't like gun owners. I mean, it's a, a group that's overwhelmingly conservative. It's a small minority. I think handgun owners in Canada are about, you know, 700,000 in number. So it's an easy group to score political points off the backs of because uh, people that don't understand guns, that don't understand gun owners, that don't think you need to have that, or that are confused about what the laws are, will say, oh, yeah, yeah, no one needs a handgun. I, I support that. So it costs him no votes and gains him a few. It's interesting. I, I want to play a clip for you because uh, Justin Trudeau was asked uh, about this question. Uh, he, he was asked whether or not or why uh, his, his gun ban seems to target lawful, law-abiding uh, gun owners. And uh, I, I want to get your reaction to this clip. Well, what would your message be to um, firearms groups that are saying, uh, you know, this handgun ban uh, continues to just uh, target lawful gun owners and, you know, it's you know, similar criticism to other gun legislation saying it's not going to target people that are breaking the law anyways? I think people need to be careful about uh, misinformation and disinformation in this. We've explicitly and specifically not targeted law-abiding firearms owners because uh, those who currently own and uh, operate handguns safely and store them safely are not at all targeted by this legislation. We're simply saying uh, that we are uh, freezing the market and in the future it will not be possible to buy, sell, transfer or import handguns in Canada. There have been too many tragedies. Canadians need to see safer communities and this is uh, a comprehensive multi-step path towards that. I don't know how he's justifying saying that because it only targets the law abiding. <laughs> Again, it doesn't target people that have no respect or regard for the licensing system, people that haven't gone through the background checks and the regular compliance measures and the storage rules, all of that. It, it only targets the law abiding. But again, he, he's preying on misinformation here and on people that don't actually understand how hard it is to get one of these things in Canada. Well, it's interesting because if, if I was a reporter there, I would have asked a follow up. Okay, then who who, who does it target? Because we're, we're talking about like, like, I, it's, I don't understand. And then also that little dig that he does at the beginning. And this has become like a, a tick for, for the prime minister. It's like anytime he gets a question that has some kind of criticism built in, he goes right to misinformation, disinformation. I've, I've heard him do this multiple times to journalists, not, not just independent journalists, but 
legacy media journalist, where he sort of accuses them of misinformation and disinformation. And I know it's a little off topic because we're talking about guns, but I just I have to get your comment on that. What do you what do you think of the prime minister kind of slipping that in and then not even providing a clear answer? Like I really genuinely, honestly don't understand what he's talking about when he says it's misinformation, disinformation to say that this bill only targets law owning. What, what, what's your what's your take on the whole thing? Well, it's his go-to because he doesn't think there is any legitimate criticism of him. So if someone is criticizing him or criticizing a policy of his, he assumes they must be misinformed. They must be the problem. It's it's, it's wild, though, especially given, you know, the, the, the broader environment that we live in right now where we're told that the biggest threat to national security is online radicalization and misinformation, disinformation. There's, what, three different bills that the liberals have cooking up uh, that, that it targets news organizations and and free speech on the internet and it, again they go back to this misinformation disinformation you have national security specialists using these buzzwords andrew i i mean why, why doesn't why doesn't anyone call the prime minister on this why, why don't journalists push back when they hear him uh just say this kind of blathering nonsense I think a part of it is that they don't feel they're ever going to be the target of the regulation. They don't feel that the uh, regulation of media is a bad thing. In fact, it protects them because it prevents their competition there. And I think there's a lot of short-sightedness that's really at the root of this, where they don't understand why, or I shouldn't even say that maybe they understand and they just don't care about the broader implications of this policy, about a world in which all media has to go through this government conduit. Because as we know, and as True North has been talking about relentlessly, uh, that is the only sort of media environment for those traditional legacy media types, which is the government channel, government funded, and now government approved. Well, I mean, you see, you saw Trudeau just sort of throw that out at what I presume is a legacy media journalist there. It's, it's, it, there's just so many levels of absurdity when Justin Trudeau talks. And I think that that is one of the examples. Well, that's not the, not the only sort of big shocking news story of the week. Andrew, I want to ask you a bit about um, on Monday, there was a House of Commons vote on whether or not Canada would be ready to lift the remaining COVID restrictions. So many other places around the world have already done away with them. They've sort of learned to live with COVID and everybody Everybody's moved on. Uh, in Canada, not so much. Uh, the, the 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 Liberals and the NDP joined together uh, to vote against this motion. So it was defeated by uh, a count of 117 to 202. So there was just one Liberal MP and one Independent MP along with the Conservatives that voted for it. So uh, I wonder what what's your take on this? Why is Canada dragging its heels when it comes to just moving on and learning to live with COVID? I don't know if I can answer the why, except for to spite people, to spite the unvaccinated. I mean, that seems to be the big thing that Justin Trudeau wants to do. But let me tell you, it, it is literally just Canada. When I flew to Zurich to uh, cover the World Economic Forum uh, conference last week, uh, the second people got off the plane, you could tell who the Europeans were because they all like ripped off their masks because they can walk around maskless in airports. And on the way back, same thing. You know, everyone's walking around, no vaccine passport in Switzerland, no masks, uh, none of that. You go through the airport, you're mask free. And then the second you get on the Air Canada plane, because they're regulated by the 
government, you've got to put your mask on. And at one point I was sort of reminded that I was coming home when I saw a flight attendant wake up a guy who was sleeping because his mask had like slipped, you know, half a millimeter below his nose or, or something like that. So it, it is insane. It's completely theatrical. If you look at Justin Trudeau and his cabinet ministers, they're selectively wearing masks depending on which meeting they're in and which thing they're in. And it's like, it, it's, you could tell that they don't believe it anymore. They aren't buying into it, but we all have to. And the vaccine mandate for internal travel is insane. There's a, a big legal challenge afoot right now against this. And I don't think they want to give an inch. I, I think the convoy embarrassed Justin Trudeau significantly. And I don't think he wants to relent on anything that the people in that convoy wanted. And, and maybe I, I'm drawing too many conclusions there, but I, I think spite towards this people that Justin Trudeau holds in contempt, which he feels are the only people asking for change is really what's motivating this. Although the opposition is growing. I mean, I mean, just this week, the WestJet CEO is on a plane in Europe and he tweeted out how kind of almost giddily that, oh yeah, mask-free in Europe. And, and he didn't, you know, take aim at the government, but you could tell implicitly he was saying, uh, what is it that is different in Europe? What is it that the science says here that it doesn't say in Canada or vice versa? And, and WestJet's CEO also came out this week and, and said, we've got to get rid of the mandates. They're killing tourism. Now, my view is, is that they're just wrong. I, I think the tourism implications of that may be a, a point of evidence in favor of dropping them, but I, I think they're long gone. If there was ever justification for them, there isn't now. Well, a, a couple of things. I, I think you're totally right about uh, spite because we saw this non-binding motion put forth by the conservatives. Uh, it got voted down. And then the next day, Trudeau uh, announced that they were extending their their uh, restrictions, which, again, it's punitive, right? It's telling people who are vaccinated that they can't, sorry, people who are not vaccinated that they can't come to Canada, people who are unvaccinated, they can't leave Canada. So it's 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 punitive in nature. I Anecdotally as well, I, uh, I've flown, flown around a little bit and I noticed that every flight I get on, the pilot comes on and sort of reluctantly apologizes and says, we know, we know this, this policy is still in place. We're sorry. It's not up to us. It's, 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 we're following Canadian federal regulations. And you could just tell that everyone is sick of it. I, I, one other story, I was flying from Ottawa to Washington, D.C. a few weeks ago. And as soon as we went over U.S. airspace, the pilot announced that you could take your mask off. And, uh, you know, he, 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 the pilot was excited to, to announce this, like, don't worry, you don't have to wear it anymore. I instantly took my mask off and then I looked around Andrew and nobody else did because I realized it was all bureaucrats on the plane <laughs> either American or Canadian so I yeah going from one capital to another that's a good uh, <laughs> I feel bad I'm glad you survived that flight uh, to be honest and and I don't even think the pilot was right but I, I you better believe I wouldn't be complaining because I mean I, I, a flights I've been on they've kind of claimed you know transport Canada jurisdiction over the entire flight even if uh, only a bit of it's in Canada and I think this yeah. is the thing people but these these measures everywhere else I find are, are decreasing in compliance. Like if you go around, even in some medical clinics right now in Ontario, masks are required, but, but people generally aren't wearing them. The airline industry, the aviation sector is like the one thing that the federal government can control. They can't control your neighborhood corner store. They can't control the grocery store. They can't control all of these other spaces, but they can control air and rail travel. And, and I think there is something to, I just want to make these people suffer and I want to make these people hurt. 
I, I think you're completely right. And to, to, to speak to the science, uh, our friend Senator Denise Batter, she was in the Senate the other day, and she made an incredibly good point that really, you know, for all the times that we hear from Justin Trudeau that this is based on science and, and we always have to follow the science and we're the party of science, uh, Denise makes a great point about how there's nothing really scientific about this measure. Uh, I'm going to play that clip for you, Andrew, and I'll get your reaction to it. Senator Gold, according to a recent article, a UK public health agency report published this month showed that after a second dose of Pfizer and Moderna COVID vaccine, effectiveness fell from 65 to 70 percent to as low as 15 percent by 25 weeks afterwards. Most people in Canada received their second dose a year ago. Yeah, and she's very right about that. And I I would also add that even booster doses, which were uh, heralded as like the next frontier in this, have been abysmal at protecting people against the the latest variant, the Omicron variant. I mean, the boosters, booster efficacy is pretty much non-existent, which is why people like me that went, you know, for the first two years or I guess year and nine months of the pandemic with without really knowing that many people who had COVID, uh, it quickly over the, the winter and even in the last couple of months has become like everyone knows someone or multiple people that have gotten it. And, and they're all fine, generally speaking. I don't know anyone that's had any, any serious ailment from uh, COVID in the last few months, but there is no justification for it. I mean, we, we got vaccinated in large numbers. Vaccination hit its saturation point where uh, no matter how many mandates and restrictions there were, as many people got vaccinated as we're going to, at that point, you have to just move on and say the people that thought the vaccines were affording them protection got it and everyone else didn't. They made their choices. Okay, we decided it was safe enough to open restaurants. We've opened everything else. Why can people not get on a plane in their own country? It's it's part of the thing I think Andrew and I'll let you react to this is that if they if they loosen the rules now they're kind of admitting that they were wrong I mean from Denise Batter's point after 25 weeks so so we're talking half a year for me I I got my second dose what over a year ago in 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 May so so a little over a year ago Um, that means for the last you know 30 weeks or so I I have had less than 15 percent protection I I feel like the Trudeau government is just doubling down because admitting that these policies don't work uh, sort of undermines the case that they've been trying to make for the last year what do you think about that yeah, I think you're right about that. It, it undermines it. And and the thing is, by not releasing these things sooner, they've made it more difficult because now there's never going to be that magic moment where, okay, one day it's unsafe, the next day it's safe. There have been points in the past where you could really draw a line and say, okay, you know, case counts are here or hospitalizations are here. But now that, I mean, it's so insignificant. People have moved beyond this. Uh, we don't have a mass hospitalization crisis. We don't have all of these things uh, tripping public health alarm bells that were there or people said were there some months ago and, and certainly a year ago. So there isn't any moment now where the government has even said, we will do it when this happens. We will lift the restrictions when, because there is no metric now. They're, when, when they're making things up as they go and not regarding uh, science as being the basis of policy here, there's no metric that can even justify it. So ultimately, whenever it happens, it's going to be just on the whim of Justin Trudeau. What a, what a crazy way to govern. And speaking of this, I, I don't know that you and I necessarily see eye to eye when it comes to the issue of decriminalizing drugs, Andrew, but I, I can't understand why a prime minister would sort of unilaterally announce that one province out of 10 uh, 
they're now legalizing drugs or decriminalizing hard drugs. We're talking about hard drugs. We're talking about opioids, cocaine, ecstasy, MDMA. Like, so, 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 you know, as of January 31st, 2023, Canadians over the age of 18 will be legally able to possess 2.5 grams of these hard drugs. And we're told that the purpose of this is to combat the rise in drug overdoses and this sort of epidemic of opioid uh, addiction and, and drug overdoses. Um, do, do you think decriminalization is the best way to help people who are addicted to drugs? Well, I, I think that you're asking a question there that I, I would say no to, I, but that doesn't mean I'm not for decriminalization. And, and I'd say there are two things. Number one, I'm a libertarian. And when you're talking about people that are doing things to themselves, however unhealthy or risky they are, I, I think that they need to be able to make these decisions for themselves. But I say that recognizing addiction is a disease. And, and despite uh, the challenges that you see from drug addicts in a lot of communities, especially in BC, I think this needs to be dealt with. I think when people who are using drugs are breaking other laws, those other laws need to be enforced. And I think that's what a lot of the activists uh don't really want to talk about because I, I do know that families are very much affected by this. Businesses are affected by it. I see it in, in my city of, of London as well, which is rapidly, I don't know if it's reaching BC level numbers, but it's certainly uh, rapidly rising in, in drug use. But I, I think there's another side of this though, which is you look at the status quo, has this helped? Has this worked? And some people may say no, and there's de facto decriminalization. A lot of uh, the times in BC and elsewhere, police are only going after those who have volumes where they'd be trafficking anyway. So there's been a, effectively a decriminalization policy. Uh, but even if that's the case, I, I'd look and I'd say that criminal prohibition has not stopped all of these problems that we see in communities across the country, across North America. So if there is some way that we could just take that criminal aspect out of the equation and make treatment available and more widespread, I think that would be desirable. And, and I realize there are a lot of ifs there, but I, I don't think that anyone can say that the situation we have today is a, a resounding success for the prohibition model. Well, I, I, I would take just the opposite position because I, I grew up in Vancouver and even in the 90s and the 2000s, um, drug use is rampant, right? Like people are using cocaine, people are using ecstasy, people are using heroin. It's everywhere. And that was under a, a regime that, 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 you know, they like you said, they looked the other way. And so this, this whole idea that, um, like, to me, this signals from the Trudeau government, like we're, we're just kind of throwing our hands up and we're, we're not going to have a policing element at all. And I think the reality is that living in a city like that, living in Vancouver, where drugs are everywhere, um, everybody uses drugs. And, and when I say drugs, I mean, mostly uh, marijuana, people smoke pot or they, or they take other kinds of like lighter drugs, I guess. But then a lot of people do move into the heavier stuff, Andrew. And it's not like it's a personal uh, internalized use right when you're when you're using drugs there's externalities go 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 take a look at the lower east side of vancouver and see sort of the what, what i think is is uh i mean it looks like a war zone there, there's just people with no no dignity whatsoever uh, no one's taking care of them there's no there's no care there's no hope you know pe people are just indulging in the most sort of self-destructive behavior possible and now we have you know, we, we already have a situation where there's safe injection sites and where there's government enabling this kind of thing where you can get your drugs tested to make sure that they're not uh poisoned or, or what have you and and now you have the true government signaling like hey uh we're going to take more steps to enable uh this this sort of 
incredibly destructive uh, behavior. Uh, it's not just Vancouver that it happens in cities all over Canada, as you mentioned, even in, in Little London, Ontario, but, but certainly Calgary, Vancouver, Toronto, any big city, Edmonton even. I, I've seen heavy, heavy drug use, and I just, I just can't understand how taking a step towards allowing more people to use this, to, to enter into this type of a lifestyle, um, like how, how that's going to help minimize drug addictions and minimize the harm that comes from drugs. Well, I, I think you have to look at the motivation. And the question is, are we trying to, and is this trying to normalize and endorse drug use? Or is it trying to reframe the way that we try to get people off of drugs? And, and I'll be the first to admit, I know there are activists out there that are complete okay with the normalization of after people that say yes it's a legitimate life choice not just it's your choice to make but it's a legitimate thing that we shouldn't get in the way of and and i have significant issues with so-called safe supply programs that, that try to say that you know we should be able to offer people uh, a, a quote-unquote safe version of the street drug they're using because this isn't working either and, and i think that does go down the road of normalizing but if we are trying to get people off of drugs and we're trying to get people into the pipeline and we have treatment available to them, the rationale that I, I do think has some merit is that people shouldn't be afraid of getting arrested if they want to seek that. Now, I would be completely okay with uh, in, uh, some stopgap, a measure that said you have to go through treatment or you have to face charges for whatever the offense is. I think that would be a legitimate in-between. What I don't like is, and, and you and I probably agree on this, is, is this idea that criminal law is now like locality dependent. This thing that's supposed to be national now changes depending on where in the country you are, which is not supposed to be how criminal law is. Well, I, I don't mind the idea that if, you, if you're found with heroin or drugs, uh, heroin or cocaine or something, you have the choice of going into treatment or face charges, uh, but but it seems like this this possession with what they call small amounts, that that there's no there's no penalty whatsoever. If you if you're caught with with heroin and you say oh it's just for me, uh, then it's like okay go ahead have have a great day sir. But but um, if you're not I, breaking any other law, what's the problem with that? If you're not doing anything else illegal. Well, it's it's like the question is Andrew, like what kind of society do you want? What kind of like world do you want to live in where we as a society and our laws and our political leaders say. You know, yeah, there's no meaning to life. There's no, you have no dignity to your body. You can go ahead and 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 completely desecrate yourself, and and you can you can take heroin until you die. Um, and and this is just that's just another lifestyle choice, right? There's there's no moral good or bad. And I, I think that when you get down that path where you're saying to people, go ahead, you know, you you do your heroin and just keep to yourself. It's like, again, go go spend some time in in the Lower East Side of Vancouver. I lived in San Francisco for two years. Uh, it it is a disgusting hellhole of a place to watch people, the lack of dignity, uh, watching people defecate uh, on the streets, watching people sleeping, watching people chewing off their fingernails, watching people struggling through the addiction, the horrible addictions that come along with drugs. And then of course, you know, when they, when they run out of drugs and they want their next kick, what do they do? Uh, they go out and rob people. They go out and rob stores. They break, they smash windows. They, they destroy the city. And, and again, Go to go to Lower East Side of Vancouver. Go to uh, the Tenderloin District of San Francisco, and you will see hell on earth, right? And so it's like, again, w what's the problem? It's other people. It's 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 their life. They can destroy it all they want. It's like at some point you have to ask, what kind of community do you want to live in? What kind of country do you want to live in? What kind of place do you want your kids growing up in? And to me, I've I've seen that, and it's not something that I 
would advocate for anybody. I mean, I feel sorry for, I feel sympathy for people who are down that lifestyle, but I think that the reason that they go down that path is because they have no other option. There's no one there to help them. A lot of times they have mental health issues. And I think that there's a lot better ways to actually help those people and stop them from using drugs than to say, okay, well, it's just for your personal use. So go have a, have a good day, sir. That, that would be my, that, that's, that's where I stand. Yeah. And, and again, I don't think this is a legitimate life choice. The question is, do I trust government to be the arbiter of what your life should look like? And, and the answer is a resounding no, because I, I don't think, and I know it's a bit of a straw man, but I, I don't think we want a world where the government is the one that decides the appropriate level of risk for, for other activities people partake in, whatever they are. I realize drugs destroy families. I realize drugs destroy communities. And interestingly enough, you mentioned San Francisco. I had heard about all of that with like the human excrement on the streets. I just didn't know how true it was. Like literally my first time and my only time in San Francisco, like I walk out the door of my hotel, which is a very nice hotel. And there it is on the side of the sidewalk. So very much a, a real thing. I just don't think that criminalization is the path to do it. I, I think you have private charity groups, you have a lot of advocacy groups that are working on this that I think should and, and could be doing a lot more on this to uh, get people off of drugs. I just don't think the prohibition model has worked. And I, I think that what we have now is a reflection of that. I mean, I, I, I think that, that that could be the case when when you look at something like marijuana and you could say, okay, if, if someone's using marijuana, the, the, the only person that they're really impacting is themselves. But when, you, when you're talking about these other drugs, I mean, it's so clear that there's externalities because you're not living, you know, if, if these people could take drugs and just be in like a complete, uh, you know, uh, sorry, they could be in a room with like, like padded walls or something like that, then it's like, okay, I guess go nuts. But the reality is that they do them out on the street and, and there's all kinds of, of runoffs. And uh, to, to me, again, this is like peak woke Trudeau pushing uh, the most sort of tr whatever the trendiest leftist cause of the day is. And I think, I think it's just completely the wrong, uh, the, the wrong choice. Andrew, I want to ask you one more, one more question. Maybe we can end on a, on a note that we actually agree on. Uh, another thing that happened this week is that the Liberals um, pushed for the end of debate on the Online News Act. This is Bill C-18, which um, would determine who is a qualified journalist and who is not a qualified journalist. So I'm, I'm wondering, uh, what, what, what's your take on the Liberals doing this this week as well? Yeah, I don't know if I made the cut yet. Maybe we'll have to wait for a little while to figure out if I'm on the approved list. Generally speaking, this government's record would suggest no. Uh, you know, it's funny because the great the main criticism about C-18 is that it's government control over the Internet and government control over speech. And, and there's a, a particular poetry in government shortening debate and cutting short debate on a bill whose primary criticism is closing off the marketplace of ideas. So all I have to say is, you know, at least they haven't lost their sense of humor. <laughs> sense of irony there all right andrew well thanks so much for joining the show it's always great to hear your perspectives opinions and thanks for all the great reporting you do for true north hey it's my pleasure thanks for giving me a place to do it all right that's andrew lawton i'm kenneth malcolm and this is the kenneth malcolm show mm -hmm.